Attention, citizens, it's time for Super Pulp Science. Welcome to Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre stories get made. Today, we're specifically going to talk, and by we, I mean myself and Justin Curry, my studio mate, uh, collaborator and um, suffering studio captive. A little bit of all those, yeah, yeah. all the above. We're going to talk about when to say no. Specifically to projects, jobs, stories, collaborations. So not just freelance, all kinds of opportunities to related. No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now I'm springing this topic on Justin right now. He didn't know about it before I uh, told him four or five minutes ago. So we are going to see where this leads. But it occurred. The reason this came up, dear listeners, is because um, a ten-year-old specter from my comic book ancient past reared up yesterday on social media and I realized that this maybe was a project I should have said no to but I instead said yes to. Now I have to be purposely vague because I'm trying to uh, honor my existing contract and be do right by the people who worked hard on this project but I can tell you the following parameters. That once long ago young naive Gregory was so excited to be working in comics that when a then a mid-tier comic book publisher approached me and said, hey, we'd really like you to redesign a character and work on a book for us, I was thrilled over the moon, in fact. So they approached you. Yes. Yeah. So this was another thing. It was not part of a uh, pitch or anything like that. Someone reached out through the internet and grabbed me by the lapels and said, please work for us. So I said yes. But perhaps... I should have said no. Um, so before I get into more details about that, Justin, I want to ask you a question. In the last, say, 12 months, how many projects, how many things have you said no to? I have a, I shouldn't say this, but I have a pre-canned response to most projects. Um, oh, tell me. Please, <laughs> Justin, please, Justin, I want you to work on my... Well... Yeah, it's it's a lot of times it's it's people starting out and they're looking for um, artwork for free at this point with potentially rewards later, which. But what could be wrong with that? What could be wrong with that? Which is great. Like when you're starting out, I I understand that's usually you know you don't have capital to work with if you don't have friends that are artists. Like how how are you supposed to get art done for your comics? Well, you just kind of. You, you put some lines out there and see if you get any bites of people willing to, to take a gamble on you. Um, a now, lot of times with projects like that, it's not to, to put down like writers, it's, but it's, it's one thing to write a comic. There's a writer to, in this room. Yeah. I just want you to know. <laughs> it's one who thing has to, a fragile ego. And when it's broken, the edges are sharp. So be careful what you say about writers. 32 pages of comics, illustration versus writing. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's like, no contest. there's yeah, no there, contest but, there. Know, so it's... Someone has to do more work <laughs> and it isn't the writer. That's absolutely yeah. true. Yeah, there's, you know, it's... Writers have a... It's it's not easy to be a writer either. But when it comes to projects like that, it's kind of... The illustrator has to do a, a bit more heavy lifting. Um, So a lot of projects like that, I... And it's, it's true. I will, go, My, I will go on record here with an opinion that it's easier 
to be a writer and have a day job than it is to be an artist and have a day job. Yeah. Because I feel like, at least in my own writing process, the percolation, right? The little idea that's bubbling in the back of your head can do that while you're doing other things. But, and then you have the perfect word, the perfect phrase, the perfect sentence, the perfect idea that comes out of that. And now you have something with impact that you now put on a page that takes an illustrator all day to do. And that one page, like you, it's it's almost like getting a train going. It takes it takes a lot of effort to get that illustration for that page going. Once it's going, if you have to stop at any point, like at a page eight, you have to stop and take like a couple days off and come back. It's so hard to come back and get back into that momentum. So this person, so these people come up to you. Let's just use a uh, let's use shows as a scenario because yes. I've had this happen as well. You're at a show be it a fan expo or a Calgary. Oh, I guess Calgary is fan expo now too, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Recent news, breaking news, ladies and gentlemen, fan expo is the boss of Canada now. Uh, so you're at a fan expo show <laughs> and someone walks up to you and says, I have a great idea. In fact, I have three or four scripts written already. And I would really love for you to be the illustrator of my new science fiction adventure story. How do I respond? Blink, blink. Yeah. Big smile. Um. What is the question you need to ask? What are some quantifying questions? I have a few. I'll answer these in a minute. So usually for me, I'd, I'd probably right off the bat say like I, I probably can't be involved. Maybe covers. I'd be interested in potentially doing covers for you. But I have, you know, I'm doing 30 events a year, like 25 conventions in different cities and and 10 little shows and, and events and you on the board behind you right now in the studio have 13 books of your own 13 scheduled books to work scheduled. on over the next three years. And I, always, I have sketchbooks and sketchbooks full of just digital paintings that I want to do. I know where all those will end up as far as, as personal fulfillment and financially what those can make me. Right. You, there's a good chance you're not going to be able to beat my ideas for my artwork, you know? Right. That's kind of what it comes down You'll to. You'll be building someone else's dream instead of your own, too. Well, right. I, I know how to best utilize myself. It's very, very rare that you find somebody who's going to be able to, to tell you how to do things better than you innately know. You know what you can draw well. You know what scenes work the best in your style. You know what you're excited about. Is There's, there's very few people that can come along and direct you on a better path than you're going to be able to direct yourself on is what I found honing my skills throughout the year. Okay. So this person has asked you now you tell them, Hey, you know, it's unlikely that you'll be able to pull me away from this great job Mm -hmm. and they leave a little bit saddened, but they understand because they see that you're busy and also people push them out of the way to come and get your stuff at the show anyway. So they can't stick around too long. Um, Online, though, you have a, a much, I think, a bigger presence. And I know uh, from being across the studio how many queries show up in your inbox. Um, some of them you consider and some of them you flat out just send a polite, no, I'm, I'm, uh, thanks for saying so, but I'm just too busy right now. The ones that make you consider it, what's going on? We, I guess we probably shouldn't name it either, but there was that, uh, uh, it was like character design for a board game. I, uh, well, here's, here's my, usually my response throughout the year is I can't take on anything until after the end of November when my convention season dies down and I can actually sit and work on things. And usually that 
kills most people's momentum. They can't wait that long or they forget about it by the time this rolls around. But for the most part, people people can't wait to work on my schedule. Right. And that's that's fine. Um, As opposed to, they can't wait to work on your yeah. schedule. <laughs> uh, for like the, the big one that I said yes to this year was I'm working on a, uh, a kid's book, a follow-up to Quackers Wants to Fly, Ollie. I'm really excited to work on that book, but it was very, very hard to find any time to get into the momentum of doing a 32-page storybook during the convention season when we're in one city for four days, we're home for four days, and then we're in another city. Between packing, unpacking, and sorting, and getting ready for the other show, and having a personal life, getting a couple pages of of a book done in there, on top of getting the new prints that I want done, is hard. So at the beginning of your um, tirade of no's, it started <laughs> like, you know, I am in my ivory tower and I'm just too busy for the likes of you. But as we stretch this out a little bit, imagine that, dear listeners, context adds understanding. But as we stretch that out, it's, it's more that you don't want to do a hurried, bad job for somebody. That it's just not reasonable to expect them to wait for you you're putting them first you're so selfish and i think that's that's happened in the past when when i was kind of starting out i would try to take on commissions actually that was um that was kind of one of the final coffin uh nails in the coffin of my job at at complex games i was doing conventions i was working full-time at a video game studio and i was trying to do freelance and it was a great magazine called on spec had got me to do a cover um, about two years ago, and they were great to work with, and, and I really enjoyed working with them. They had another project they wanted me to, to do, and it was kind of in the middle of convention season. Not that I had many conventions, but it was, it was around conventions. I had a full-time job, um, and I dropped the ball. I didn't get them things on time as far as thumbnails and roughs and all that, and I couldn't correspond as much as they wanted, and they, they cut me from the project. And nothing like that had ever happened before. Oh. It was kind of like a wake-up call, like, I'd wanted to do this project, but I was so stretched thin and I was kind of phoning it in because I was just, I was trying to do too many things. Too frazzled. And this was, yeah, this was probably like one of the the big deciding factors. Like, why am I working two and a half jobs when I should maybe just be concentrating on the one job? Right. So I quit my my day job and started doing comic cons and freelance full time. So the no in this particular scenario is the know thyself. That's why they're getting their power from sunlight. There was another client. We also can't talk about the project, but we can talk about the client. We can name the client. There's a client that did reach out to you that you said yes to with great exuberance recently. Starts with an N, M, and ends with with, uh, Arvel. (laughs) Well, yeah, Marvel reached out. What was great about Marvel was they, um, they were not asking me to follow when there's there's different types of freelance jobs and you know about this like sometimes when you get freelanced you are just an artist you are a tool and they want to kind of to twist you and make you do exactly what they want you, I, yeah you, i describe those as when someone hires they're looking for an artist an as artist, opposed yeah. to hiring me when they hire you it's very apparent right off the bat because they know your portfolio they know your work and they often reference like what you did in the Imagination Manifesto, like the third one, that one chapter, that's what I want in my book. Like, that's the feel I'm going for. That's what I love about your work. That makes things oh so much easier. And that's how it was with Marvel. They referenced all these things out of my portfolio that 
that's what we like about your your work. That's what we want you to do. And it was very sandbox. It was like we have, you know, these couple of things that we want to get done, but the rest of it, go to town. And it was it was Marvel. So I yeah I made time, and it was a really fun project. Um, in my recent history of freelance, it's usually not have fun with it and do what you want. It's it's I have a very like the the client has a very specific vision, and they want me to try to force my work into that vision and it never works out as well as as i'd like and then i also just as you know someone who has uh, been a fly on the wall of that process um it also when you were corresponding with them they were very understanding of the fact that you were doing shows you said you know i'm going to be two weeks traveling and then i'll do a week of work for you and then i'll do two weeks traveling and i'm gonna do work for you i'd also learn to be upfront about that yeah Yeah, if you need to take more time or you're going to be delayed on something just let them know a couple days ahead of time and and most of the time clients are are very understanding in the early days i would try to you know i would kind of white lie my way through like I'll get that to you as soon as I can, and then I'd, I'd go away for a weekend and, and come back. So I've been working on it all weekend, but, you know, you'd, yeah. um, you'd fudge the numbers a bit. But Ooh, we're into the dark zone here. We may have to. We'll have to. <laughs> this uh, was back in, in three, like two and a half jobs, Justin. So Two and a half jobs, Justin. Now yeah. you're just one job, Justin? <laughs> now I'm just one job, Justin. One job, Justin. <laughs> all right. Well, we're here with one job, Justin, talking about when it's good to say no to a project. Okay, so let's let's turn this around because... I've seen you take on quite a few big freelance projects lately, but what about all the little ones? I don't see you take on too many small, and I'm sure you get just as many as I do. How do you handle it? I do. I turn down way more projects than I accept. And um, I have my internal vetting process kind of goes like this. I I think that writing or, you know, creative endeavors, let's just call it that generally, because some people write, some people draw, some people make music, some people write poetry, some people do interpretive dance, whatever it is you like to do. I think that it fits into kind of three streams. Um, The first stream is something you do for yourself. You know, it's, uh, it has an internal motivation. It's intrinsically motivated. There's something you do for an audience where you know you're going to show it to people. Um, and you expect it to be finished in a way by that audience participation, right? Uh, you hang a painting on the wall, the audience's reaction to it completes the cycle of the art. And then there's work that you do for a living. And you can have creative work in your day that is all three of those areas. And that I think, dear listeners, that if you're a creative person, you should endeavor to have those three streams happening every day. And I try to do that as well. So I have some work that I do just for myself, I have some work that I do just for an audience, like I do on my uh, Patreon and that I have on my social media uh, or that I uh, show in galleries or things like that. It's for a specific audience, but I'm not really worried about whether or not there's a direct stream of income from that. It's just part of the cycle of getting better at doing what I do. And then there's work that I do for a living. And the best jobs, the jobs I've said yes to recently that qualify technically as work for hire have felt like all three at the same time. So when I did uh, Will I See with Isque and David Alexander Robertson, that was a project that was offered to me that felt like all three of those things at exactly the same time. And it felt like a socially conscious work that I just shouldn't say no to. And at the same time, I had been approached by the Faculty of Medicine Uh, at the U of M 
to do a graphic novel about the real emotional cost of a life in medicine. Um, and coming off of a good long stretch of hospital visits with my family for some personal reasons, I felt like I really wanted to give back to that. And so I'd been offered these two really great jobs and I couldn't do either of them. Like I really just had to say no, because at that time I was working full time. I had two other books already that I was working on. Um, I'm a father, I'm a husband, uh, and there just wasn't any more time to scoop out of anywhere. And so my initial thought was I'm going to have to say no to both of these really great projects. And um, instead, I said yes. I talked to my wife, I <laughs> talked to my family, I talked to my uh, uh, work colleagues, and I said, you know, uh, the true cost of anything is the amount of life that you spend on it. And so I have a, you know, teaching is a great job that you can take a leave from. So I took a leave and I said yes to some projects that I'd normally have to say no to. That has set a tone for me for the last two years, that the projects I've said yes to um, have to fit into those three categories now. Like if I'm going to be doing it as the thing I spend my time doing, um, I want it to be a job that I don't need a vacation from. And so it has to fit into those three categories. And I've been extremely fortunate to find collaborations and companies and, and publishers that have made that possible. I have some sort of big announcements coming up in the next couple of months, and I'm really excited about them. Um, but what excites me more than the fact that, yay, I'll be able to pay my mortgage, uh, is that they were the right ones to say yes to. In stark contrast to that one I alluded to earlier, which was something that was lots of fun, but I didn't vet the people who were involved, and I didn't look at the company too closely, and I didn't do my due diligence. Now, this is 10 years ago, so I've learned a little, I hope, in 10 yeah, years. Yeah, because we've been talking about our current, like, kind of how we're handling freelance and, mm -hmm. and outside opportunities, which is very, very different than, than most artists. When we were starting out, I think we should talk more about... Mistakes we made. Mistakes and, and you know, things we learned. Um, one thing I remember, once I figured this out, I, I treated freelance very, very differently, was um, early on I decided if I'm going to be doing freelance projects or, or painting projects for other people, uh, the money wasn't that great. You know, most people don't have a huge budget for, for artwork. Um, it has to be able to kill two birds with that one stone. If I'm going to be doing a project for this guy, I have to retain the, the, the rights to the artwork and I, get, I have to be able to use it as either to make it into a print at Comic-Cons or use it in a comic or use it in another project. It can't just be for that. If I'm going to put eight hours into that project, okay, that's I need to be able to use it somewhere else. Uh, I do the, Okay. When I started out, that was the, my one rule, too. There you go. We didn't know each other then. We didn't know I'd, each other, but... Um, I always offered two prices for my freelance work. Uh, one that gave them, ex like, work for hire, an exclusive work for hire. I do it. You get everything. You get all the files. So I want you to design drafts. a robot for me, and it is 100% mine. Yeah, so I'd give you yeah. one price for that, yeah. right? Which was double the price for uh, first print rights. So you can have it. It's all yours, but that costs you double. If you have first print rights in, under that context, then I, once it's printed and once you've had your fun with it, 
I have the right to reuse that image, to uh, recontextualize that image as a collage, art, collage artist. That was important to me because I might chop up some pieces and I didn't want people to say like, hey, you're cheating. Yeah. Right? Um, <laughs> so it gave me the legal wherewithal to do that, but also um, gave people an affordable price. Like yeah. if I was transparent with them to say like, here's my process. I, I use lots of stuff and I, I reuse lots of bits and I'm, I'm just making stories with whatever's laying around the studio. Um, yours might go into that that go pile um and you have to be okay with that and mm -hmm. if you're not pay the iron price then yeah right did anybody go for the a few yeah really? a few okay. people who were really like who like myself understand the real value of and yourself and a lot of the people that we hang out with the real value of the intellectual property right knew that it was worth paying up front yeah to own it forever um and it's funny because those are the ones that I think about the most often. Are the <laughs> ones like, oh, I wish I could, I wish <laughs> I had that still, or I wish I, right? So um, when I started out, though, I didn't make comics. My, hmm, how do I say this? The trajectory that I intended was to make comics for a living, but the practice was not to try and make a living at comics then. So I only accepted um, work for hire projects that I thought would teach me something that I didn't know how to do. So it was sort of like I wanted someone to pay me to learn and to evolve to, to, yep. to try something yep. hard, right? So if someone uh, came to me, like, so for example, uh, John Toon came to me while I was working on the Imagination Manifesto, and which was like, you know, a gritty, dark, occult, action adventure, mystery story, um, tentacles and blood and bullets. And he said, hey, I'm looking for an artist to do uh, a kid's book about fishing, <laughs> right? And I said, well, I know an artist. And deep down, I knew that I wasn't the right art. Like, I, I wasn't really the right artist, but that's why I wanted to do it. Because I knew that if I could switch gears, right? It was like a proving ground for myself. If I could switch gears and do something kind of cute and fun and for young kids, then maybe I would um, be able to do any kind of story that was in my head. But I wasn't confident in myself at the time enough to just take a risk on that. But I was confident enough that if somebody else needed me to succeed, I would put my attention into it. And so that also goes back about 10 years, those books. And uh, I look at them now and it's like, What's true is that they're in stark contrast to my more adult <laughs> work there. But what isn't true, I don't think, is that I, I understood the difference between my own pacing. When I look at those two books, I see that the panel pacing that works in horror comics, I was trying to apply that panel pacing to kids' books. And, you know, plenty of people liked it. Like, you know, it was, it was a successful project. But... When I see it, I know now more that I should have looked at what the genre is asking for and why it asks for those things. And, yeah. you know, I should not have just gone with gusto. But, but I mean, it, these are the mistakes you make when you're starting was, out. It was a stepping stone. Yeah. There was, a, I think it was you who told me this story. There is a fairly well-known comic book artist whose main, he's, he's famous now because he worked for free for years. Who's that? Oh, uh, famously, Mark Miller. Said Mark that. Miller. Yeah, yeah, Mark Miller said that the first. Um, he's mentioned this on Twitter a number of times, and in the in the argument of should you work for free? Yeah. 
uh, when you're starting out and everyone says, no, don't work for free, you're so valuable. Um, he famously came out and said, no, when you're first starting out, if you work for free, you'll get more jobs, which will give you more practice, which yeah. will make you a better writer. Um, you have to know when to stop. I think kind of what I gleam out of that is it's the practice thing. He, he was hustling nonstop, and so he got proficient versus the somebody who's a you know has a little more ego when they're starting out is like I don't work for less than x amount right. who sits there collecting dust work, not working at all yeah if you're not at least doing your own projects then yeah, yeah I'm, you're I'm a member of an online community that just brought up yesterday I saw a post there that said you know what should I charge for my artwork mm-hmm. everybody's got answers everyone has man there were hundreds and <laughs> hundreds of answers and what I found most interesting about this post is the person did not post their artwork. Oh. Right? They just said, what should we charge for art? You know, what should my art be worth? And people are saying, oh, well, how many hours did it take you? Right? People are saying, oh, you know, what are your material costs? What are your, you know, taxes? What are your studio things? And they're trying to figure out this um, magic formula for what art should cost. It it doesn't really work that way. It doesn't exist the way that you'd like it to so the corollary of this is the long-winded i just was sort of skimming but people kind of had figured out this sort of group hive mind came together did some calculations and figured out you know that people should be charging 85 dollars an hour for their art practice you know in all of these varied minutiae and then the guy was like okay great and he posted a picture of his work which was like no you could not charge $85 an hour for that. It was very amateur. It was very unfinished. There was just starting out. Just starting out. There was no mind to composition. There was no mind to color theory. It was clear that the guy put his soul and heart into it. But he's got a long road ahead of him. He's got a long road ahead of him before before he can charge $85 an hour (laughs) to work on that. Right? Yeah. Because he also posted, you know, I assume it's he actually, I don't really know. Um, He or she posted that it took them 12 hours to do this piece as well yeah right um and then there's another there's that other side of the argument if you work fast should it cost less in a freelance industry speed actually is a benefit is something you can sell Mm -hmm. if someone approaches me and says um you know we'll pay you six hundred dollars for this illustration i will often ask them what if i could get it to you by tomorrow that raises the price that doesn't lower the price yeah right because in a publishing freelance world, time is money, right? The sooner that you have it in print, the sooner you have it in your hand, the sooner you can go to market, so you can go to market, the sooner you're uh, betting or hedging against all of your upfront costs, uh, of which, dear listeners, there are many in publishing. Yeah. Presented in Hypnoscope. I think starting out, a lot of people are really, they're too focused on finding finding a writer for them, finding a publisher for them, finding like, you know, other artists to collab on when they haven't done anything by themselves yet. Yeah. Artists that have, you know, sample pieces of artwork that have never done a book or a comic or or finished anything and they're they're kind of skipping ahead of all that hard work and just like, okay, where, where like, where's the publisher that's going to pick me up? Where's the writer that's going to work for me? Like, I think... More people, you just need to to write your own, finish your own short stories, print your own short stories, prove to the world that you can finish your own 32-page comic, 
and then people will actually care about working on your next project with you. Right, because that momentum, that capacity to finish. They need to see that you yeah. can finish because there's so many people yeah. that want you to work for free for them that have never finished a thing on their own that promise we're going to make money eventually. Well, how to like prove it? Like, well, prove that you know that. Yeah, going back into the 10-year archive. So I... Um, I've been mentoring a comic student recently, and so I had a whole bunch of my early work on my desk. So I reached over and passed one of my very first comic endeavors ever over to uh, our long-suffering story editor here, Dan. And he's <laughs> flipping through it. This was the first time I had ever put together a book. It's a black-and-white, saddle-stitched uh, book. And it's quite bad. <laughs> right? Always. <laughs> Dan says it's not bad. Okay, here's Dan's reaction. Oh, I got I got. I got my own microphone. This is pretty good. <laughs> this, this isn't is bad at all. I mean, I haven't read it. There. So. There it is. But well, you, what uh, makes, you've now proven to us that you can good. actually finish a comic. You know? That's true. Yeah. I, I, don't, could, I can do this. You couldn't. No, okay. So then. Not. Okay. Well, I stand corrected. It's great. Um, <laughs> I've, I've always been great. And um, I, I hope I never change. Uh, I would also like to, to tell no. a quick story, dear listeners. Um, early on, like probably a year or two before Cassie and Tonk came out... I bugged Greg to work on a book together. True. And he kind of, he said, he didn't brush me off, but he basically gave me a, yeah, okay, we'll see, like a prove it to me kind of response. And it took me a while to basically figure out that I think, I think Greg had gotten approached by a lot of people like me that hadn't done anything yet, but had ideas to do something. Seeing that he had done something and they want to latch on, like, you're the guy who knows how to publish books publish mine yeah to which his response was you need to finish something yeah first. you need to you have um you know it's there's some skin in the game as the yeah uh, as the old expression goes the the notion that um anybody can help you get your book finished i think is also dangerous um you have a lot of ideas, you may have a lot of talent, and then you think, well, if only I had this missing ingredient. Maybe this missing ingredient is another person. Mm -hmm. um, that's dangerous, because if you glom on to another person who also is not yet fully formed, then your two ideas and your two motivations are going to get very muddled, and that project is going to sink to the bottom in that tangled knot of confusion. Um, if, however, you have two people who finish things, get together, what they'll talk about usually at the start is what will the finished product look like? Mm -hmm. Not let's dream up all the possible stories. When this turns angles. into a movie yeah. and a TV show and a toy. And That's right. They will talk about what will it look like when it's finished. And if they can say what I'm looking at having when it's finished is a 22-page um saddle stitched black and white comic that has a little bit of action in it um a little bit of violence a little bit of adventure and a touch of heart then you know that they know what they want and you can agree on those broad strokes and then you can get into the minutiae um if someone comes to you and says hey you know i have a great idea for a book well ideas don't have any value unfortunately right i have a lot of great ideas for books too but it's, it's the labor of finishing that has value. And so when someone comes to me and says, hey, I have a great idea for a book, and then I made it, and here it is, and I look at it, and even if the art is obviously beginner, 
You know, this is how I view this Enswell book that I handed you. It's like beginner. It's me figuring out my voice. And it shows, it's obvious that it's not polished and finished. But what it also shows is that I am interested in the craft. I'm interested you're selling in yourself short with this book. It's, it's really not that bad. Okay, <laughs> like, a reissue of this book will be out <laughs> soon, I guess. Um, but for me, it also wasn't the trajectory that I wanted. Like, I know from this book how not to work. Yeah. Right. So Enswell is a, uh, you know, it's subtitled in Imagination Manifesto. It was like a parallel story that ran uh, that I worked completely traditionally in. Um, now I work sort of 80 to 90 percent digital. But on this project, I worked 80 to 90 percent analog and the labor. Not in the story or the writing, but the labor in the edits of an analog comic book when you're starting out are enormous and there are so many errors in this book still um and working digitally now you know i learned my process to say like where where can i save that time right being able to redo and fix panels much more quickly buys me that time back to spend with my kids and i think you know make your own first comic because one you will learn your process or learn what's wrong about your process learn how to fix your process um Two, you'll see how much work, like this, how many pages is this? 32? Yeah, I think so. You'll realize how much work 32 pages of of a book are because, oh my God. I also remember, okay, so here's the thing. It's 32 pages of comics, right? No ads. What's true of modern comics is comics are only 22 pages long with 10 pages of ads. But I wasn't thinking that at this poor, naive stage (laughs) in my career. I just counted the pages. It's like, oh, I need 32 pages. If I'd only thought about it, I could have cut a third of the workout. Part of when I say no is if you haven't said yes to your own process enough, I'm going to say no to collaborating with you is the way I think about it. So if you you are too raw of a... Like, I'm not going to collaborate with you because you clearly have some, some things to figure out on your own. Yeah. 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 Because you have to, you have to fail a lot before you have the, have the capacity to hear from a collaborator that they don't like what you're suggesting. Because remember that if, you, if someone comes to you to work on a book, you are now entering into a long-term, emotionally charged, deadline-driven relationship. Hundreds of hours of work. Together. Together. Um, if that person cannot handle criticism, constructive or otherwise, then that timeline doubles because now you have to deal with people's emotional state as well as their creative state. And guess what? So many creative people, their emotional and creative state are all tangled up together. We, uh, We have a mutual friend who wanted to start their own comic book and they got one issue done. There was three writers and one artist. I think it was doomed to fail from the beginning. Giant sigh. Yeah. Um, if it it quickly fell apart, and I don't I I don't think it was the artist. I think it was the three writers. Too many voices. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually, one started to kind of do all the work. The other two started to. I I don't know the full story, but three. Now, if you're three, making a TV show, lots of writers is great. Yeah. Right. The more writers you have that have a similar idea, they can all run away and write their episodes. That would be great. If they had all run away and written an episode of that comic separately. And then, oh. they, and then the artist, you know, worked on it episodically in yeah. that regards. I'm sure it would have turned out. But everyone throwing their voice and trying to have the perfect line or the perfect statement or the perfect phrase, that's not going to work. 
that is not going to work. Okay, so there's another scenario where it's important to say no to people. I think I'm going to set up a little a little scenario for you. All right. Um, hey, my I've been friends with this guy for a long time. Do you want to go out for dinner with us? Do you remember this story? No. <laughs> Justin is giving me the look. Remember when um, we'll leave all the names out of this is the redacted show where we don't name names <laughs> and we don't say anything. Justin and I were at a comic show and someone came up to us and said that they were friends with someone we knew oh. <laughs> and then arranged for us to go for dinner, said, hey, we're going for dinner. Name dropped, said we're going for dinner. We found out later when we all showed up that they had done that to the other person too and they didn't really know anybody at the table. They just really, really had wanted to social engineer sitting beside an artist that was a friend of ours because they were basically creeping them. We had a crazy fangirl trick us into going out to supper with her. Yes. So um, the other reason why it's good to have some no powers, some no clout, is uh, if you're making work, you're now a public figure. And you cannot be in charge of how people respond to that work uh, or connect to that work or emotionally invest in that work. And by extension, that investment can be pointed at you. Now, we were soundly beaten by this person. They completely <laughs> tricked us all and got what they wanted out of the scenario. Uh, the poor uh, unnamed artist, we'll call him Bill. Poor Bill <laughs> was sitting uh, unbeknownst to us, looking at us all forlorn while we tried to figure out how to extricate ourselves from this situation. <laughs> Um, poor Bill. Poor Bill. Poor, poor Bill. Um, and then the person, actually, as I recall, they also stiffed us with the bill. If I, if I'm going to be in, right? <laughs> there so, was, uh, there was, yeah, the, yeah, that that was a little more expensive than it should have been for everybody. <laughs> so let me ask you a question: How do you guard against that yourself? Because we're out at shows and people come screaming up to you, chasing artwork guy, chasing artwork guy. How do you stay safe? Yeah, that's starting to be more of a a thing than I ever thought. Like, we have to be a little picky and choosy with who we're going out for supper with because there's more and more people who, you know, there's more and more people who want to go and do things with us after. And, and my general inclination, inclination is to be less picky, is not yeah. to try and act like we're, because we're, nobody's a... Dear listeners, nobody is a big deal. No, no. Right? Everyone will have to poop later today. <laughs> right? This is a great equalizer. There's none of us are special. But um, sometimes you can get yourself into a situation. Uh, why to say no? So commissions. Let's talk about um, another redacted name who was brought a commission to do some sexually explicit content. Yeah. And then that put her on this commission person's radar. She turned it down. Soundly. There's actually, it's a pretty, anybody who does the, the Fan Expo Toronto um, on a regular basis and is a pretty girl has probably run into this particular gentleman. Yeah. He wears a, a Hawaiian shirt often and he commissions some very um, explicit things. And people sometimes and take the money, but then they are tangled up in that relationship with this individual now this guy if i knew his name i'd actually name him because i find his um 
his actions to be deplorable. We've yeah, we've heard from several different artists now stories about this guy, and I wish we'd known this earlier so we could. People should be bringing this this guy to the attention of the Fan Expo people because. Yeah. At the last show, we we urged four or five people to send messages about him to the show organizers to just make it a matter of record. Can we um, tell them what he commissions? Um, I feel like as a public service announcement, maybe we should. We can always edit it out later if we feel like we're legally in trouble. <laughs> yeah. But it's usually, is it Disney princesses usually, usually or? Disney princesses. Comic book girls. Covered in glue. Covered in glue. And we'll he does. He's not commissioning the the guys in in the artist alley. It's usually the the pretty girls who are there by themselves. And then he takes great joy in describing this sticky liquid to <laughs> the female attendees. And it's like it's. I, I'm getting angry actually just thinking about yeah. this guy. Um, I mean, you know, art is to everybody's own taste, but this guy has crossed the line. So there are things you should say no to. Like mm-hmm. when someone comes up to ask for a commission from you at a show, which is a thing people do a lot. If you're listening to this, you don't know what we're talking about. A commission typically at a comic book show is when an artist is approached either before the show or during the show, paid a fee to draw a picture specifically for that individual. So they might say, you know, I want you to draw my daughter as Batgirl. I want you to draw Doomsday and, you know, some other octopus portrait of my dog a portrait of my dog whatever you want to i had a i commissioned someone to do a picture of my wife recently at a show and i thought it was uh they're very well done however sometimes people use that as a way to get access to the artist they think that because they've paid you for your time they now can be your best buddy or that they can email you constantly or that they can reach out to you every time you're in that city and that you owe them something um so you need to be careful. But I don't know if I have good advice as to how to vet those people, except to say that you want to ask. Trust your gut. Yeah, you got to yeah. trust those instincts, right, in that respect. So we, uh, we haven't – I was going to talk about booth barnacles a little bit and how there's – so. con- There's two categories <laughs> of booth barnacles at a show that you have to learn how to say no to. Uh, one are the completely benign types. They just really are fans, yep. and they really are nice, and they really are just um, not too great at taking social cues. And so they hang around maybe for an hour or two, and they interrupt every conversation that you have with another person. But they're not doing it out of malice. They no. are legitimately just really keen, and they want to be part of it, and uh, you encourage them because they are keen, and they take it a little bit like an invitation to hang around all day. I actually don't mind those. Those I can deal with if I have to. Um, in a very pleasant way. Those and some of those we have invited out for dinner. I'm not, yeah, that's true. That's probably a bad call sometimes, but we have. Um, The other type though, do you want to talk about? The type that wants just your attention and just to interrupt and they want to be the center of that attention. Yeah, I think think some people work they work it up in their mind. This is how the conversation is going to go. They they overthink it and they try to force it. And if it on, misses the mark, they just start at the beginning. 
and go and go and go and they're not taking any and sometimes they're rude and sometimes they're forceful and if their point is not being made they become agitated and if you don't agree that star wars is better than star trek then now <laughs> you're you're in an ar- heated argument about them actually i uh i saved neighbors of mine from a booth barnacle one time and now uh it's the red letter media they do um they watch like old movies and uh, they they do reviews. They're famous for the Star Wars reviews, the 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 first three Star Wars reviews. So my very first tr- Wizard Toronto show, which is no longer a thing. I think it existed for two years and then it kind of dissolved. Um, they they're notorious for reviewing the first three Star Wars movies and kind of tearing them apart. <laughs> and so all show all they were getting were kind of the worst kinds of booth barnacles of people sitting there and just spewing opinions at them just like kind of berating them so oftentimes I would um I would kind of inject myself into the conversation and try to get them to you took some fire from yeah it took took a bit of flack and and I've done that a couple times at shows so I think it's it's a good you're a hero good thing to recognize when somebody else like we've done that to friends too where we've we've kind of We've noticed the conversations at their booths and there's also, you know, slide it in there. One of the unstated things here, too, is that Justin and I are both uh, we're middle aged now, Justin. We're both middle aged white men who, um, you know, we have some certain advantages in an awkward social situation like that, that maybe some of our female booth partners do not have. Mm-hmm. Um, when we interject into it, there is no there's very little element of danger to us. Right. There is not an imbalance of power in the same way. And so when we can, we try to, you know, intercede. But you can't. It's not always our place to do that. And so we try to look for we have some friends at shows who sometimes have those problems. And we have told them that we are definitely on your team and you just have to send a text or give a wave. Or we have a few signals, little Fantastic Four signal flare that they can send up. (laughs) And we will arrive not as like a Bella cavalry, but just as like. Two guys who show up at the booth and then engage in the conversation and lead that person away. And if they need a more strongly worded um, cease and desist, then we provide that too. But um, you have to know what your boundaries are and stand by them. There was an occasion where it was close to calling security Mm -hmm. at my booth. Um, An individual came by and he bought... I think it was it was more than it was like four to six prints. Like he he bought a couple things and he was he stuck around and he was very um, opinionated and 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 talked a lot and was kind of like there was people waiting their turn um, and he kind of took his time and you know that's fine. Um, uh, he he took off and an hour later he came back and he'd put all his stuff down somewhere and he couldn't find it so he'd lost his prints. And this was now my problem and everybody else's problem at the booth. Like, it was his turn. He'd lost his prints. What am I going to do about it? Right. And what, what, what do you want me to do about it? Right. He's like, well, I don't have them anymore. They're not, like, I can't find them. Okay. Yeah. Did you lose did them you, Like, maybe yeah. go, like, retrace your steps. Like, yeah. he's like, I did. And, like, it became this really, really tense thing where everybody's kind of, like, looking at everybody else. Like, what's this guy going to do? Yeah. And trying to bully you into giving him free stuff. Basically, yeah. So yeah. I, I said, like, I can give you a discount if you want to get them again. But, like, it's Sunday. I'm, I'm running out of stuff. I can't give you yeah. six free prints yeah. of, like, you know, and they were all, like, you know, the 
um, like heavy hitter prints kind of thing. It ended up they were at Drake's table. <laughs> so the, then the guy, like, he found them eventually. He came back, and then at the end he came back, and he wanted a refund from the, the second purchase because he'd found his prints. And I was there with my little sister at the time, and, like, just the way this guy was acting, it was very close to... Well, you we're big gonna, brothered up too, right? Yeah, yeah. we're going to get somebody, and we're going to get you, like, get away from my booth. Like, yeah. you were, yeah. So, that, that was the tensest I've, I've ever had it at, at a table. Since the count turns into a monster and seeks his revenge. Okay, so we have different ways, different things, different um, lines in the sand that we've talked about <laughs> here today. We've talked a little bit about um, the freelance life and then mm -hmm. also the convention life. Let's come back into what makes a good collaborator. We know what makes a calamity at a show now. We've covered <laughs> that. What makes a good collaborator to you? Because you've talked about all the people that you wouldn't work with and yeah. why. Who would you work with? I think a good collaborator knows your work and knows how to direct you without trying to pull your focus on any particular thing. They know you're good at X, Y, and Z, and they're they're going to let you do those things without trying to, like, that's not the way I see it in my head, so maybe try doing it again. Right, right. You know? So they're leaving enough to for you to have some artistic license. They're giving you a sandbox. They're right. not giving you um, those the, the star and square and circle shaped pegboards. To, right. That you to must do. In. That you must do. Mm -hmm. um, I write for some illustrators, and I illustrate for some writers, and I write and illustrate my own work. So I have different um, parameters in which I look for those collaborators. But for the most part. I think that's true, that if somebody comes to me and knows my work and says, I really like what you did on this page, <laughs> specifically, um, I can usually tell them that that wasn't what the author originally asked me for, if I'm talking about just being an illustrator. Often the stuff that stands out for people are things that um, myself as an artist made a choice that led to that. And people will think that it sounds like I'm taking credit but what I'm actually saying is that the writer was able to say your job is the visual medium and my job is the written word and the architecture of the story changing this image according to your gut makes the story stronger within the architecture that I've established and mm -hmm. they can put their ego aside long enough to say you know this panel I described maybe isn't the best choice based on the flow of lines, the palette of color, the pace of the story that you're setting up visually. And finding somebody who can detach themselves from that original vision and evolve along with the project now that somebody else is on board. I yeah. think everybody kind of gets, you know, falls in love with that first vision of the project. Yeah. And they can't detach themselves from that and let the project kind of grow on its own. So when you come in and say, I, like, I think it'll work better if I do it this way. Yeah. That's not my original vision, so I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't want that. Yeah, absolutely true. Dave so Robertson was a great collaborator in that regard. He f writes very, um, I don't know what kind of scripts he gives everyone else, but he gave me for Will I See a really tight, specific script with camera angles and oh, wow. um, color palettes and, you know, what it smelled like, everything. Did was, that scare you? It totally did. <laughs> it totally did. But I really wanted to work on the project. I felt like it had 
um, it had meaning beyond entertainment, which is what I'm more interested in working on now. And so I was, I was confident that I could follow the directions. And then I started. And then I became worried that I had too many of my own ideas. I remember that first, because uh, I was in the room while you were working. <laughs> yeah, you remember. And I remember you were sending over, they, they just wanted thumbnails or roughs, and you had finished like eight pages. Yeah, because I was scared. And you, were ter- you sent it off, and you're like, I'm so scared. I'm so <laughs> but- scared right now, because um, uh, I didn't want it to seem like I didn't think he knew what he was doing. Because it's not true. He had written, what, 22 graphic novels before poor little Gregory came along. (laughs) What I simply wanted was that they had chosen me. They didn't choose an artist. They asked for me. And because it was me, I had a sudden intuition about some of the compositions, some of the layouts, and some of the choices in how to establish some of the emotions in the book. And then I started fighting those intuitions to follow the script. And that felt very difficult for me to fight those intuitions. And so instead I said, what I told you, I said, I'm gonna follow my intuition. I'm gonna do these first eight pages according to my intuition. And if I have to redo them, that's fine, right? We had a contract that said that um, uh, I would do 15%, 15% revisions they could ask for and beyond that we'd have to pay for. I released them from that on these eight first eight pages that I sent. I said, you can consider these like thumbnails, even though they're yeah. finished, because I've gone so outside of the purview of what you've asked that, you know, it's fine if you say no. But this is what my gut says about this. And to his absolute credit, uh, Dave Robertson, when he looked at the pages, said to me, he said, this is completely within the spirit of the story. Everything here is the same as what I feel. It's just different than I imagined. He said, I want you to take that script and think of it like a movie director who's been given a script and then arrives on location and figures out, oh, there's a better shot if we move the camera over here. That's a good way to think about it. And it was so freeing. It was so freeing. He said, you know, there's very sparse dialogue in Will I See? And, and we sent it also to Isque and we got her feedback and she was, she was just so supportive in saying you know it's it's this is a story about emotions so as long as we're feeling the right emotions as we move through the story then the tiny details we don't have to argue over that's a collaboration you say yes to you know where someone is going to let you have a little bit of leeway now if they had said no we hate them right no you must follow those pages then i would have done it you know that was project wouldn't have been nearly as strong though i well, I don't know, right? I'm and there's, a, there's also a part where I wonder sometimes if we as artists get our, let our intuition or our ego get in the way of what could be a good project. Mm-hmm. We're going to bring on an art director for a later show um, who has worked with hundreds of artists, and he's going to tell us how you manage those things. We are those people, so it's difficult yeah. for us to tell you, dear listeners, how to manage those things, but he's going to tell us how he manages those people. But I wonder if maybe... Uh, maybe they should have said no to me. If they should have said no, we trusted Dave's script. We trusted Isquay's story. We trusted you to follow that direction. Please do so. That was their purview as a publisher, absolutely. And they, you know, they trusted me, but they didn't have to. If they had said no, maybe the book would be different. Well, for sure the book would be different. I don't know if it would be better. 
Mm. So on that um, pontification, dear listeners, we will leave you. <laughs> Remember um, that you should know your limits. You should set some limits for yourself and you should stick to them. Use the word no, but don't let it stop you from joining the fight and making comics. Thank you.